This is CMU Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, David Ludlam, and we are here with Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor of Biology, Zainab Azoy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. here. I actually wanted to ask you about your background as we were talking before the show. You mentioned that you were from Turkey, and as I think about the role of a university in terms of bringing diverse people from all over the world, diverse ideas, and mixing them together for the benefit of society, um, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about your journey to CMU and and what you brought with you from from Turkey. Sure. Um, So I was born and raised in Turkey, in Istanbul, Turkey. I went to college in Turkey. I actually have a chemical engineering from Boğaziçi University. Um, But I always wanted to study biology. So in chemical engineering, I moved to biochemical engineering and took some biology courses, and I loved it. And then when I finished that, I started a master's program in biology in Istanbul. And at that time, I also applied for some grad schools here in the United States, and I got accepted. So I kind of came here in 1996 and got a PhD in molecular uh, biology and uh, genetics. Um, after finishing my PhD, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at UC Davis. And during this time, I studied mostly DNA repair and recombination enzymes, some of which are related to diseases that cause predisposition to cancer or premature aging. Um, and then our family situation led us to Grand Junction. At that point, there was Mesa State College in Grand Junction. And um, I was really excited because I always wanted to teach. Um, when I looked at my advisors, both in grad school and during postdoc, um, they didn't really get to do that much science. And a lot of times teaching was looked down upon as a burden that they had to do. So I really wanted to teach. That was one of my passions. So it really worked out well because at that point they were looking for an instructor in biology. So I started teaching genetics. Why are, why are you passionate about teaching? I love the interaction with the students. I love seeing that aha moment in their eyes when they understand something that they didn't before. And um, I love biology so much that I want everybody to have a little bit of that love in them. What do you love about biology? You know, I think of all these different subjects that people get into and they get excited about. And, you know, biology is it's really diverse. But um, but what what do you love about it? It is very diverse. And I usually say I don't know much about organisms. I know more about molecular biology, what's happening inside of the cells, what's happening with the molecules. As a matter of fact, I did mostly biochemistry when I was doing my uh, Ph.D. work. Um I like the fact that there's so much that we don't know and every scientist that's working on it takes a little chip of the unknown and little by little we get to know more. And then I feel like when you're teaching, you're pulling these other people into the field and they have the same curiosity and have the drive to figure out a little bit of the unknown themselves. Well. I really like the fact that you're doing work that extends beyond the university's borders and into the community. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the important research that you're doing that has a, a benefit to the region and to the community here? Sure. So when I came to CMU, I realized that I could not do the research that I had done up to that point. Um, not only is it a very competitive area, but it also requires equipment and 
budgets that is not available here. So I decided, you know, I know a lot about DNA. I know about DNA metabolism. And um, there's actually a situation here in the valley that is very relevant to anyone who is outdoorsy. And that was tamarisk, which is also called salt cedar. It's an invasive plant that was introduced to North America in 1800s. And it was brought over because they thought it's going to stabilize the river um, banks, except it did it too well. And it started overtaking the riparian ecosystems. So in 1980s, USDA started looking for a biological control agent that could control tamarisk. And after um, talking to scientists in Eurasia, they did find actually hundreds of candidates. And finally, they narrowed it down to one insect called tamarisk leaf beetle. It's the genus Diarabda. And they did a lot of studies overseas. And then finally, it was brought over first in quarantine in USDA um, facilities. And then finally, in 2001, it was released in several parts in uh, United States, in Wyoming, in Nevada, in Colorado, in Texas, in Colorado, and California. So my research is um, basically looking at that tamarisk beetle and doing molecular analysis of it. And just going back a little bit um, for our listeners, if, you know, I'm a, I'm a big rafter, I'm on the Colorado River, I'm paddleboarding, all these things. Is this salt cedar something that we would see it you know just right here in oh yeah junction i mean if you look down the colorado river you will see the green tamarisk um this season this past summer we actually had a great beetle activity so if you saw trees browning up that was because of my beetles <laughs> well i remember the drive you know the back way to moab for most of my life you couldn't see the river and then when you did the big release there it would look like a post-apocalyptic zone because it was just nothing but brown, dead tamarisk. Um, but then the Russian olives started taking over. Like, wh- how do you? What is the landscape going to look like when it all settles out? What is the goal for the end game here in terms of what does control look like? So the control basically doesn't kill the plant necessarily, but it will prevent it from spreading more. Um, I actually don't know if Russian olives have really taken over or if we see them more that the tamarisk is browning up. Um, I think restoration will be a big part of reclaiming our riparian ecosystems, but it's complicated. And there are several groups that are working on that. So the cottonwoods and the willows don't necessarily just come back. It has to be something we work at. Unfortunately, one of the things that tamarisk does is it changes the chemistry of the soil, making it harder for the native species to reestablish. So one of the studies um, that was shown in the Rivers Edge West conference last year, for example, was if you were to plant cottonwoods, saplings, with soil from non-tamarisk invaded regions, they do better. So you're kind of inoculating it with soil from other places, and they do better than just directly planting them in there. Interesting. I'm thinking, you know, some people listening to this might say, okay, we're bringing in, well, this was this, you know, invasive species mm-hmm. that wasn't supposed to be here, and now we're bringing in another this. one. Yes, exactly. And what, what are the implications of that? Mm-hmm. What are you finding in your research? I think so far it's been going pretty well. In the beginning, there was a little bit of... Um, 
problem in the southern latitudes because the beetle that was brought over the first time came from um, western China, which is a pretty high latitude, similar to Wyoming. Actually, the mm-hmm. beetles did really well there, but they didn't do well in the southern latitudes. So they brought over other beetles, um, which were thought to be the same species from places like Greece, northern Africa, like Tunisia, from Uzbekistan, and they actually did really well in Texas. The problem is, initially, they were thought to be different ecotypes of the same species, and then studies found out that we have four different species in our hands. So that's part of my study. I'm trying to identify which beetle species is found where, and we're also looking at whether these species are hybridizing or not. So going back to your question of what will they do, um, I think they are doing a pretty good job of controlling tamarisk. There was um, There is one issue that keeps coming up, and that comes up with the uh, southwestern willow flycatcher, which is an endangered bird species. In the southern latitudes, they um, have started nesting in tamarisk rather, rather than the willow. So now there are some nests that are Um, failing because of that, but there needs to be a little bit more research done to figure out um, what's happening. How does the how does the regulatory environment affect your research? Where, in some ways, you're protect you might be forced to protect an invasive species to protect an endangered species in the same way that the wild horse and burrow debate plays out. Does that affect your research, or do you have an opinion about it? Or it doesn't it doesn't affect me at all because the beetles are already out there. We're just looking at whether which species is in Grand Junction, is which species well. is okay. down in Albuquerque or in Yuma, Arizona. So I'm just following them. Like, I'm not spreading them. I'm not taking them from one place to the other. Speaking about Grand Junction, um, I understand that some of the beetles are actually um, incubated here in the valley in Palisade, or at mm-hmm. one time they were. Is that still the case? And, and how does that work? Correct. So um, the Palisade insectary, that's um, part of the Colorado Department of Agriculture has um, in, I don't remember, early 2000s, um, was part of a group that was distributing the beetles. And they do do research at the insectary. They look at the physiology of the beetles and also watching how they're adapting as they're moving um, southward or the other way around. They're adapting and moving down to the south. And you know, here at Colorado Mesa University, we're really hands-on with a lot of our courses and classes, and we do a ton of undergrad uh, research. Are, do you have students helping you with this? Are they involved? What does that look like, that All relationship? All the time. Um, I've been here since 2006, and I started doing research in 2010. So in about 11 years, I actually had 28 research students, and out of that 28, over 20 of them have directly worked on the tamarisk leaf beetle project. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking back to my undergraduate world, and I I don't remember ever really getting these opportunities and, and seeing that, wow, I can really get out there and do this work with my professor, you know? It's like this really one-on-one interaction. That's one of the things that I love about CMU, because it gives me the chance to work with the students, as you said, one-on-one in the lab. Because even though in our lab courses, we try to give them as much experience as possible, nothing beats working at the bench 
on a real problem, getting results, or better yet, failing and learning from your failure. Speaking of failing, I have a question for you as an English major. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it was a long time ago, but I was volunteering with the youth youth conservation corps, and uh, they had I I'd shaken a bunch of these beetles into a five gallon bucket, and I took them back to a trail that was by my house because it was infested with a tamarisk, and I you know dumped them all out there, mm -hmm. but nothing ever happened, and they never. Why did why did my release fail? What did I do wrong? Why didn't the beetles eat all the tamarisk up and and stick around and? It, what time of the year was it? I think it was in the summertime, midsummer. Probably. Midsummer. Yeah. Okay. Um, sometimes it's just a number of beetle situation. You know, they do get eaten by um, birds. They do get eaten by ants or spiders. So there's actually a lot of predation that happens. So usually when they are released, um, they're released later in the evening because when you in the afternoon, they become really active and start flying around. So maybe it was in the middle of the summer, it's already hot, mm -hmm. they're inclined to fly around, they will probably not stay where you left them. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's uh, maybe I'll have better luck next time I do a beetle <laughs> yeah. release. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, massive fail, David. Yeah. <laughs> Can I talk about another small project that we talked about? That of course. I on? So it's actually another beetle, it's actually a weevil, which is much smaller than the tamarisk leaf beetles that also eats tamarisk. So even though tamarisk leaf beetle was brought over purposefully after being studied, this other weevil just showed up in United States. Down in Arizona was the first time it was observed in 2006. And since then, it has been spreading. And a weevil being different from a beetle, don't weevils eat the, like the, the they're more like termites in terms of how they would do their work or do they eat the leaves as well? Um, so weevils are a subgroup of beetles. Okay. And they can eat, there are different kind of weevils, and this weevil specifically eats the leaves. The leaves, okay. It does. And the interesting thing was, we didn't know where this weevil came from. We had no idea. Yeah. And so you, it, it sounds like, you know, you know a lot about, you know, different regions and kind of what's going on. Are you doing a lot of collaborations with different um, professors around the country? A lot. And uh, if you remember in the beginning, I said that this project allowed me to do it here at CMU because I could do it with a smaller budget and with simple equipment that we already had available in the lab. But a lot of this research also requires more expensive equipment or other things that we don't have. And that's where the collaborations come from. Um, I have collaborations with um, CU Santa Barbara, CSU, University of Idaho, Northern Arizona University, um, with the Palisade Insectary, and all of those help us to understand, like everybody brings their um, expertise to the table, um, their strengths to the table, and then we end up with nice projects. I love that. Yeah. What do you make of this idea that we spent all this time importing uh, biological control, and then you just found out that nature had attracted one. Like, what, what do we make of that? What, does, does nature have a way of sometimes finding solutions that can that are more clever than ours? Or was it already here all along during that time? Or what, do we, do you, what, did you have, what have you learned about that weevil? That's so fascinating. Um, so one of the theories was that they might have been brought over with the um, military equipment that was used in, um, in the Gulf Wars. Mm, so not it was just natural, <laughs> still yeah. brought over. So, uh, <laughs> yes, still brought over. You know, I mean, it's a small weave. It's really, it's three millimeters. They're really small. So it's not like they're going to fly over the ocean. 
And so my research, I had a collaborator in Italy, and he's a biocontrol uh, biologist, and he travels all around Eurasia. And he would collect samples from me wherever he went. So we compared the DNA of the weevils that we found here with the weevils that are found in Italy, Spain, France, Turkey, Iran, Uzbekistan, from all those places. And at the end, we actually found a pretty good match to a region in in Iran. So I don't know this for a fact. I'm not a... You know, I didn't do the full detective work, but it is possible that it may have been brought over by military equipment because they're pretty robust. They don't starve really easily, so they could have crawled into the crevices. And then once it's brought over, there is a lot of tamarisk in Arizona, and they thrived. And now we find them all the way to Idaho. They like it here. They like it here. <laughs> Which one is better if you had to pick one in terms of controlling the tamarisk? I think the leaf beetles, the okay. diarab that does better, um, but... Some of our research also suggests that the weevil may reduce their seed production because they seem to eat the flower buds. Have you we seen a rebound in uh, recreational opportunities yet in some of the areas that you've really been focused on with the beetle? I mean, I know I talked earlier about that corridor between Cisco and Moab, Utah has seemed like it's improved, but have you seen any of the areas where the revegetation has been successful and we can now reuse use the river? Oh. There are, you know, there are some regions that I see in the conferences that I go to, but I personally do not. Like, if you ask me where they happened, I don't remember. Okay. We're recording right now uh, on campus at Colorado Mesa University, and I'm looking out the window here, and I just see students walking by with their backpacks on, going to class. Um, And we are open, you know, during COVID-19, and I know um, you've been doing some work here with that. Can you kind of talk about that for our listeners? Sure. Um, So in the summer, we were, I was part of the group that helped out setting up the lamp lab. That's the one where you get to spit into a big tube um, up to one milliliters. And um, we set that one up. Um, And then this most recently, we've been working on the wastewater testing. So this last semester, we have been collecting wastewater and sending them to a lab in the front range. And and collecting wastewater from the residence halls on campus. Correct. Yes. And engineering faculty has been instrumental in that. They're the ones that started that. And that water would be sent to the front range and get analyzed there. Now what we're doing is, or we're hoping to do, is that we'll do our own analysis here on campus. Well, I want to thank you for participating in that. I mean, I know it's resulted in some research that's happening with the Broad Institute and others, and it's really put helped put CMU on the map for our pandemic response. So thank you for your contributions to that. And thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And thank you. I really appreciate the conversation. Can't wait to see what your work uh, produces with the uh, Invasive Species Project. It's just amazing and I think is a huge benefit to our regional community and economy. Thank you. You're listening to CMU Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman, and this is my co-host, David Ludlam. And we were speaking with Assistant Professor of Biology, Zainab Azoe. Thank you so much for being here. It was fun. Thank you so much.